Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Tuesday, November 26, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, a new article discusses Biden's stutter, Warren leads in a new LGBTQ poll, Google will limit how political ads can be targeted, the impeachment update, New Hampshire sets its first-in-the-nation voting date, Politico has an interactive endorsement tracker, and Sestak publishes an op-ed about our government's duty to Native Americans. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, a story about Joe Biden and his stutter. Stuttering is a speech impediment that's relatively common. The National Institute on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders estimates that roughly 3 million Americans stutter, and that affects people of all ages. Sometimes speech therapy helps, sometimes strategies to avoid speaking certain sounds can help, but fundamentally this is a neurological thing. This is not something you just grow out of and not something that is easy to live with. Writing for The Atlantic, John Hendrickson went deep with the former vice president on the issue, and this was helped along quite a bit by the fact that Hendrickson himself also stutters. Reading from the piece, quote, A stutter does not get worse as a person ages, but trying to keep it at bay can take immense physical and mental energy. Biden talks all day to audiences both small and large. In addition to periodically stuttering or blocking on certain sounds, he appears to intentionally not stutter by switching to an alternative word, a technique called circumlocution, which can yield mangled syntax. I've been following practically everything he's said for months now, and sometimes what is quickly characterized as a memory lapse is indeed a stutter. As Eric Jackson, the speech pathologist, pointed out to me, during a town hall in August, Biden briefly blocked on Obama before quickly subbing in my boss. The headlines after the event? Biden forgets Obama's name. Other times when Biden fudges a detail or loses his train of thought, it seems unrelated to stuttering, like he's just making a mistake. That kind of mistake other candidates make too, though less frequently than he does. End quote. This is an article worth reading. It is the first link in the show notes. It is not often that a person running for the highest office in the land talks about his disability, and that is the thing we need to do more of. Many Americans, many people around the world, have some form of disability, including this one. And I think it's vital that when they open up and talk about it, we go ahead and listen. One more note on this article. There's been some chatter online, I'm looking at you, political Twitter, that sees this article as some kind of apology for Biden's misstatements. But if you listen to the part I just read, it actually directly acknowledges the difference between a stutter and a misstatement. In fact, the author explicitly says that, yeah, Biden says the wrong thing often. In fact, more often than other candidates. Next up, Out Magazine has teamed up with YouGov, an online polling firm, to offer what they call a first-of-its-kind poll. This poll is designed to get the opinions of LGBTQ voters who are likely to vote in the upcoming Democratic primary. This is a group of voters who often aren't identified in traditional polling because pollsters just don't ask about it. So I thought this would be a good one to highlight because to be part of this poll, you had to self-identify as being part of the LGBTQ community. As always, some methodology. It was conducted online, running for a week starting on October 11th. 
the margin of error on all questions is plus or minus 4.7%. The very first question asks voters how closely they are following the Democratic primary. 45% of those polled said they were paying a lot of attention, and 34% said somewhat. This is relatively high engagement compared to the Democratic primary voting population as a whole. In the next question, the poll asked voters which candidates they were considering voting for in a kind of picked-as-many-as-you-want format. In that format, Senator Elizabeth Warren came in first with 61% of the vote. Then you've got Senator Bernie Sanders at 45%, Mayor Pete Buttigieg at 39%, and former Vice President Joe Biden at 36%. Senator Cory Booker is tied with Andrew Yang, down at 14%. And then Senator Amy Klobuchar is tied with former HUD Secretary Julian Castro at 11%. Point being, Warren leads this question by a substantial margin. In the next question, pollsters asked whether there were any candidates the respondents would not consider voting for. And again, on this one, Warren did best, with only 14% saying they were not considering voting for her. Buttigieg is right behind her at 17%, and then you've got a pretty even gradient of 20s through 40s for everybody else. And in the headline result, when asked to pick one and only one candidate they would support, again, Warren got the top spot. She was the pick of 31% of respondents, followed by Sanders at 18%, Biden at 16%, and Buttigieg at 14%. On that question, nobody else hit double digits. Reading from an article by Nico Lang in Out, quote, The results themselves show the relationship between Warren and LGBTQ plus voters likely goes deeper than partisanship. She had the highest favorable ratings among candidates by a 10-point margin, with 54% viewing her highly favorably. Meanwhile, survey respondents also felt she had the best chance to beat President Donald Trump in a general election. End quote. Google has announced that it will restrict micro-targeting of political ads. They are still allowing political ads, unlike Twitter, and they are allowing basic targeting, like based on location, age, and gender. But they are turning off the ability to target political ads toward people based on voting information or any information that would identify their political persuasion. This move applies not just to Google search ads, but also YouTube and the Google ads shown on lots of other websites. It goes into effect in the UK this week and then rolls out for the rest of the world in January. While Google's move is not as broad as Twitter's outright political ad ban, the effects may be far more important because Google has such a huge advertising business. Prior to this change, campaigns could target you using data about other websites you have visited. Meaning, if you happen to click on some campaign's website just one time, then Google could show you ads for that campaign over and over and over on lots of different websites. Well, not anymore. Google will not follow you around the web showing you more ads for that same campaign because those are political ads. They will keep trying to sell you those shoes you clicked on one time and didn't buy because this change only applies to politics. An article in the New York Times summarized this new approach, including a variety of upset people on both sides of the political divide. And now the nation looks to Facebook, the last remaining major online ad platform that has not changed its stance on political ads lately. So I will let you know if that changes. What makes a life a good one? 
Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now the impeachment news in three minutes or less. Yesterday afternoon, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson ruled that former White House counsel Don McGahn does have to comply with a congressional subpoena to testify. This case was seen as a proxy for the many White House staffers and former staffers who have not testified in the recent impeachment inquiry, citing a conflict between White House policy and congressional demands. The White House has said its staff has absolute immunity from subpoenas, while the House, you know, disagrees. McGahn was subpoenaed way back on April 22nd as part of an investigation into obstruction of justice related to the Mueller investigation. But the same White House objection that blocked him from testifying back then is what has blocked so many others in the impeachment hearings. The decision in the case is 118 pages long, and I will admit I have not read it. But in an article by Spencer Sue and Ann Marimo in the Washington Post, they summed up a big part of it. Quote, Jackson ordered McGahn to appear before the House committee and said the conclusion she reached was inescapable because a subpoena demand is part of the legal system, not the political process, and, per the Constitution, no one is above the law. However busy or essential a presidential aide might be, and whatever their proximity to sensitive domestic and national security projects, the president does not have the power to excuse him or her from taking an action that the law requires, Jackson wrote. Fifty years of say-so within the executive branch does not change that fundamental truth. The House lawsuit against McGahn was the first filed by Democrats to force a witness to testify since they retook control last year. The Justice Department, which is representing McGahn, said it will appeal Jackson's ruling. End quote. So what happens next? Well, yes, the Justice Department has appealed this ruling and will attempt to get the court to stay the judge's order, which means that McGahn won't be compelled to testify while the appeal proceeds. But it may still change some things in the near future. Reading once more from the Post. Quote, Jonathan Schaub, a former attorney in the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, said a ruling against McGahn will provide cover for other witnesses, especially former employees who are inclined to testify but feel compelled by the White House's direction not to. End quote. Next up, New Hampshire has set the date for its first in the nation primary vote. This is, like many things in the New Hampshire primary, largely a formality. You may recall I told you about how they have that whole process of bringing in candidates for photo ops and showing them a historically significant desk and all that stuff. Well, yesterday, New Hampshire Secretary of State Bill Gardner made it official. New Hampshire will vote, as expected, on February 11th, 2020. And in case you're wondering precisely how soon that is, it is just 77 days away. 
Things are heating up, folks. Here's another quick one. Politico has launched an endorsement tracker which helps you dig into which endorsements each candidate has. There are several similar sites, but this one is handy because it includes source links for each endorsement, so you can go back and read the actual details of what that endorsement says. Now, this one only counts endorsements from governors and members of Congress, so you'll have to go elsewhere for other public figures. At the moment, at the top of the list by sheer numbers is Biden, with 27 endorsements, then Harris with 18, Booker with 13, and Warren with 10. Also of interest, the tracker includes candidates who have dropped out, so you can dig into the endorsements for Gillibrand, Inslee, O'Rourke, and Swalwell. The other fun feature is that you can filter the endorsements by the state where the person giving the endorsement lives. I did a bit of clicking around, and it appears that California has the broadest spread of endorsements. There are six candidates who have at least one endorsement from that state. You can also pick out other interesting patterns, including the fact that Booker has a ton of endorsements, but they are all from New Jersey. Anyway, link in the show notes and go explore. I reported yesterday that Bloomberg says he will not accept donations in any form. That's potentially a problem because now he can't get donors to get into DNC debates. Well, Politico reporter Zach Montalero, who is also a bit of a campaign finance guru, found one possible loophole. Bloomberg has a web store, and technically, if you buy the merchandise, you are contributing to the campaign, even if the campaign makes no money from the sale. And Bloomberg explicitly says he's not making any money on this stuff. Reading from the bottom of his store page, quote, All items are union-made and printed in the USA and are priced at cost. The campaign makes no profit from their sale. End quote. At the moment I say this, there are only 19 items available in that store, and the cheapest is a bumper sticker that costs $2.80. Huh, that's very precise. I guess they really are selling these things precisely at cost. And to close out today's show, I want to point you to an op-ed written by Joe Sestak for the website Indian Country Today. It's titled, We Need to Do More for Native Americans, Especially Native American Women. And it's written as a clear response to colonialism and its lingering effects as Sestak sees them today. To jog your memory on Sestak, he's the guy who recently walked across New Hampshire and has spent essentially the whole Democratic primary campaign speaking with voters in small group settings. He also retired from the Navy as a three-star vice admiral, and is by far the veteran in this field with the most military experience. He is also polling at less than 1% nationally. Now, I'm going to read you two little bits from his article, but the rest of it might be good reading material if you're looking for something this week. Maybe pair this with that Joe Biden profile I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Reading from the intro, quote, Native American people serve in the military at a higher rate than any other ethnic group. During World War II, some tribes saw 70% of their able-bodied men enlist. During my time in service in the United States Navy, I served with many Native Americans, who always distinguished themselves and did your community and our entire country proud, and I thank them for their service. As a former Navy admiral, I believe we need to be accountable to Native American citizens of these United States not only for the debt we owe them for their service today, but for the injustices throughout our nation's history that we are still struggling to mend. End quote. 
And later, he gets to the issue of tribal sovereignty. Quote, When I walk off a United States ship into another sovereign nation overseas, Nigeria, United Arab Emirates, or whatever, I am subject to their laws and judicial system. Often there will be what we call a status of forces agreement that ensures fairness for our military members when charged for the crime. But both nations have to agree to that while they are subject to the other nation's jurisdiction. Why isn't it the same when I walk into Pine Ridge Reservation? I should be subject to its sovereignty. Its rules and jurisdiction should pertain to me when I am within its borders. Without that, there can be no accountability for justice, because a non-Native American can walk onto a reservation, commit a crime, and escape justice due to jurisdictional issues. More than 80% of sex crimes on reservations are committed by non-Native men. End quote. So check that last link in the show notes for the rest of this article. I think it is well worth your time. Well, that's it for one more episode of The Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, I am off to read books and take naps and eat too much and probably watch Watchmen over and over again. The Election Ride Home has taken a break for the rest of this week as I rest up for the big news sprint in December. I hope that if you have time off this week, you can use it well. If you don't, I feel for you. I used to always work the holiday shifts myself because the pay was better and sometimes there were basically no customers, which was fun. As always, thanks for listening, especially if you're in an airport stuck in a storm, and I will talk to y'all on Monday. We'll be right back.